Hi coaches and welcome to another episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Today I speak with Bev Buckley who's now entering her 35th year as the head women's coach at Rollins College. She's led her teams to over 500 wins and has coached 21 All-Americans. She was also a standout player herself competing in Wimbledon, the French Open and the US Open. Bev was recently recognized for her extraordinary commitment to the ITA and college tennis after being named the recipient of the 2020 ITA Meritorious Award this past December. In this podcast, we discuss her early days as a player and a coach, some mistakes she sees many coaches make early in their career, her advice for a long tenure in college coaching, and why coaches should consider getting more involved with the governance of college tennis. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bev. Bev Buckley, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. I'm I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. You've you've uh, such a, a strong history as as a player and as a coach, and uh, you've you've been around and and seen a lot of different things. And I think it's valuable for our coaches to to learn from our more experienced coaches and and have a you know a unique perspective of where we've been where we are and maybe where we're going as well so you obviously had a had a very strong playing background yourself can you give us a rundown of some of your accomplishments as a junior player a college player and then a professional player well as, as a junior player um i um was ranked in the top 20 in the country in every age division um, I won, I'm from uh, Iowa, so that's in the Missouri Valley. I won the Missouri Valley singles and doubles championships in the 16 and under. Um, I went on um, to uh, be ranked as high as number six nationally in doubles. Um, and that, that was on the women's side. Um, and then um, in high, when I was in high school, I won three consecutive um, Iowa State High School singles championships and was undefeated all three years I played 51 and 0. <laughs> and as a result, um, I was featured in the Faces in the Crowd Sports Illustrated magazine, which was kind of exciting. Cool. <laughs> and then profession, and then at Rollins, um, I played in the top four the whole time I was here. We were still um, at that point. We were we were we were not an NCAA um, school yet. Um, all the women's programs played under one umbrella, didn't matter what size school you were. And our, our senior year, our team was ranked one in the nation. And my doubles partner and I played, well, I played one doubles the whole time and top four singles the entire time. And senior year, my partner and I went undefeated and got seated one at the NCAAs. And fortunately, we didn't win, but we got through to the semis and it was, uh, it was probably my best year there ever. And then that summer of 75, when I graduated, I then turned pro and my first tournament actually was at the U.S. Open and, uh, when it was started on the clay courts mm. um, at the old, the old place, at the club. Mm-hmm. So um, that, was, that was really exciting. And the, the team that my partner and I played against was Alana Kloss and Linky Boshoff from South Africa. They went on and won it that year and we played <laughs> them in the first round. So that was kind of neat. Yeah, yeah, that that that's amazing. So, how long did you play pro for? Oh, c- consistently for five years. Um, I played in three of the slams: the French, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open. And I hadn't played in Australia, so I went. I took a sabbatical from a, a junior college coaching job I had in Southern Cal, and I went uh, traveled with my partner, and we went over, and we played the Australian Open, Japan Open, and a lot of tournaments over there. And, um, 
our best finish was the semifinals of the Japan Open, which was exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and then we finished, just as I started the U.S. Open, I finished my career at the U.S. Open, playing doubles there. So that was in 82. Um, yeah. But I did get to, like I said, got to play all the slams. Um, it was pretty exciting. My highest ranking ever was 110 in the world. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's great. And yeah. and so how has how's the doubles game maybe evolved? Um, you know, how do you, is is doubles a, a big part of, of kind of your practices and, and what you coach because you have such a, a strong background in it? Or, or oh, yes. how do you emphasize doubles? Well, we actually, I think doubles is, is crucial. Um, whether you're playing what, like we used to, the old format, where all three matches each counted a point. Of course, a couple of years ago, Division Two aligned with D1, and now you know you get one point for doubles. I still think doubles are crucial, are very important. So unless we have um, specifically a practice scheduled where they're playing singles matches, we work on something for doubles in every single practice, whether it's some serve and volley, uh, just approaching net, uh, different formations. So we do something that involves um, doubles in almost every practice. Mm. Okay. So going back into your, your, your history a little bit more. So after you were done playing pro, you coached in the private sector. So what attracted you back to, to Rollins and, and why do you think you've stayed so long? Well, when I first came off, I actually was at, I think I just alluded to it in the previous question. I started coaching at a junior college in Chula Vista, mm -hmm. California, um, and I lived in San Diego. Um, I coached there for about three or four seasons. And it was during that period of time that I um, started going back to Wakanda Club, which is where I learned to play the game in Des Moines, Iowa. They, they needed a, uh, a head pro there. And so... Um, they loved it that I wanted to come back and do that. And it was perfect because the junior college season was so short. It was literally was just in the spring. There was no fall season then. Mm -hmm. And so I would coach there in the spring and then I would come back to Des Moines in the summer. We'd finish um, maybe around um, Halloween or, or Thanksgiving, depending on the weather, because then, and then everybody had to move indoors. And my club was, was out, was outdoors. So it worked perfectly for me to coach the college team and then go work in the private sector in the summer. Mm. And the reason that I did that was because that's where I learned to play the game. So I wanted to, to return them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. It's exciting. Um, and it sounds like, yeah, a good, a good balance there. Um, yeah. And, and so then uh, tell us about your, your move to Rollins and, and kind of why you have been there so long. Why, why has it become such a home for you? Well, when I left, um, when I finished playing my career here, um, I told the coach at the time, her name is Jenny Mack, and she's in the ITA Hall of Fame herself. Um, she told me that she was going to be retiring um, probably, I don't know, a few years down the road. And I said, well, when you are going to retire, call me mm. because unless I've made it in the top 10 in the world, <laughs> which I know I wasn't going to, um, I'm just kidding. Then I would, I wanted to come back and coach at my alma mater. That was, would be a dream come true for me to be able to do that. So when I got that call in the spring of 1986, that that was her last, going to be her last season, I went ahead and applied, applied, and um, it got down to uh, one other coach and myself, and I got selected. And honestly, I think it was 
because I had played here. I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm. Um, and I've never looked back. I've loved every minute of it. Yeah. It's, it's been, um, I, I feel truly blessed to have had this job for so long. Um, I remember the coach that I took over from who was my coach. She was here 23 years. Now I'm, I'm in my 35th year. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you don't, there aren't too many programs where you're going to see two coaches in 50 plus years. No, I don't. <laughs> Probably not ever again. <laughs> yeah, it may not. That, that's incredible. People move Listen. around more now than they used to. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. had opportunities to go to other schools and coach at mm-hmm. a higher level, but honestly, I, I've had no interest in that. I've always just wanted to stay here. Yeah, okay. it's it definitely, I think uh, a lot of players or coaches would love to coach at their alma mater. It doesn't always work out that way. I don't know what the statistics are. <laughs> um, might be an interesting study to do at some point, yeah. but uh, you have that that connection. And, and uh, yeah, it's really great to hear it was your your dream job and you had a desire to do that even while you're playing pro and, and it yeah. worked out the way it did. So um, yeah, it's, that's brilliant to hear. So can you talk a, a little bit around your career then i mean you're you're obviously still very passionate about the game but as you've you've gone through your years have do you feel like you've had to reinvent yourself at any point or at several points throughout your career to maintain that passion and remain relevant with recruits and, and the players that you're coaching well there's been several times during my coaching career where where i realized that i that i've needed to make some changes um, and the, the first thing I recognized after I was here a couple of years, I had just come off the tour, basically. And even though I'd had those few years in between where I was, um, had started coaching in California, I was so competitive that all I cared about was winning. <laughs> and, I, you know, I realized that there was so much more to being a college coach than just winning or losing. But it took me a few years to realize that. Um, so I kind of backed down a little bit, so to speak, on how I approach things. Um, I think I became easier to to be approached by my players. Um, and also, I used to I used to have like three pages of rules, and I was like, "Oh, this is ridiculous!" You know, you can't even enforce half of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I've really just my focus has really changed. From yes, I still want to win. I'm a very competitive person. But at the end of the day, I've realized the most important thing to me has been um, the relationships that I form with my players. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. And I, I've read articles fairly recently that the two most important things to our student athletes now are uh, knowing that their coach understands them and and being um close with their teammates. So, so th- those are two relationships that our student athletes all want to have. Mm. And I think, I think I see that more now than I ever did before. Yeah. And, and how do you go about doing that? How do you go about developing that relationship or that deeper connection with, with those players that you're coaching? I mean, how, how do you uh, keep that at the forefront of your mind, especially in season when the focus kind of shifts towards winning again? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fine balance, I think, of, you know, you're out there, you're coaching, you want them to win. But at, at the end of the day, um, and I've told all my players this, 
look, of course, of course, I want to win. And of course, you want to win or you wouldn't be competing on a varsity team. We all are out here for one purpose. Basically, at the end of the day, we, we would like to win, but we're not going to win all of our matches. So I've always told my players, um, just always compete. Never stop competing, no matter what the score is in a match and be respectful of your opponents. And so um, I believe that I'm very respectful of them. If, if they're struggling on the court, I'll come out. And I, I can honestly say, Dave, I have never yelled at a player on the court, ever. Um, I don't think you're going to get any results from that. And I've seen other coaches do it. I've seen other coaches in, in our conference that uh, made their players cry. And I'm like, what? how is that productive? It, it just isn't. And, and it doesn't make them, to me, if I were them, I wouldn't want to come back. And I'd be afraid to play, you know, afraid to make a mistake. So you have to realize that they're human and, you know, you're going to, you're not going to win all of them, but hopefully you're going to win the close ones and the ones that are really important. Um, but I have always tried to um, act respectfully to them. I think, it's, I think it's a two-way street. They should respect me and I should respect them. Mm -hmm. And I've always um, really focused on that with my team, the respectability part and accountability you know i think it's important that they learn that yeah yeah and have you seen uh you know a shift you know from say generation x to y now to generation z is, is it um harder to relate to the players is it is it easier you know how, how or is it is it the same as nothing changes just building relationships or building relationships for me it's still about building a relationship um, yeah, these kids are different now. I think some of them um, feel a little more entitled than the kids used to be, used to feel. Um, but I can tell you that I've been fortunate enough that, honestly, of all these teams that I've coached, they've been um, very grateful for having the opportunity to play at Rollins and, and, and to be going to school here. Um, I tell you, the biggest change I've seen since I've started is, is uh, the number of international kids. When I first started coaching here, we didn't have any international kids. Mm -hmm. Now, um, almost every year, half of my roster are international. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a global sport. And now they can come over here. We have scholarships for them. And I can honestly say that my international kids, um, year in and year out, um, team after team, are some of my best students, um, which I'm very proud of also. We just got our GPA for the fall semester, and we have the highest GPA in the entire department. It's a 3.84. And I, I have a freshman right. who, um, actually, I'm sorry, she's a sophomore now. So she's been here three semesters. Uh, she's German, and she's gotten a 4.0 all three semesters. So I, I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I like when coaches say nice things about international students as I want to. Yeah, I bet you do. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, just pulling on that thread a little bit more. I, I'm interested in just you providing some kind of the secrets to a long coaching career because it's not just relating to the players. It, it's also just how you navigate the relationships within the athletic department and dealing with different administrators and athletic directors and maybe presidents, um, you know, maybe even uh, professors. Uh, there's, there's all these different stakeholders that coaches have to navigate. And sometimes, you know, the longer you stay someplace, probably the more 
people you've pissed off at some point right <laughs> it's just it's just the nature of it and and um you know so so how would you encourage coaches again to to navigate those relationships if they're if they're eager to have a, a long career um not not necessarily just within this profession but at at the, their current uh, spot if they they've landed in their dream job similar to how you did um and they want to be there for maybe the remainder of their career what advice would you have for that coach well i think the first thing is you want to <laughs> You want, you, you've got to be able to get along with your athletic director. Um, I've been very fortunate. I was hired by one athletic director who was only here a few years. And since then, we've only had two others. Um, and none of, neither one of our athletic directors that I've served under have micromanaged us, which is nice. Mm-hmm. They respect the fact that we know what we're doing in our jobs and they don't, they're not looking over our shoulders all the time. Because I know there are other ADs because I hear it from my colleagues are like that so you you're going to have to be a little um you're going to have to toe the line maybe a little bit more if you're in that situation um i've been fortunate at rollins it's it's never been that way um so the one thing is that i've always um i'm always communicating with my athletic director um if i have a question i she her door is always open um the same thing with my sport report here um she just says, just come to me if you, if you need anything. But she goes, I know you know what you're doing. So, you know, kind of hands off type of situation. But every school is different. Yeah. I mean, I've got a good friend of mine who um, she ended up, she's in a job that she just recently took. And she's not sure she's going to, how long she's going to stay there because they are looking over her shoulder constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's, she's having trouble dealing with that. Um, I think you have to understand your athletic director, where he or she is coming from, and be, you want to be very clear on what their expectations of you are. And I think you need to find that out when you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it you, you want from me? What, what do you want from this program? Um, and, and make sure that, that, that that's very clear, because I think that's where some issues can end up being a problem. Like yeah. I said, I've been fortunate enough. I've, I've had also had enough success. Um, well, when I came into Rollins, we were Division One, the only Division One program in the, in the college. Not even men's tennis was was D one. Everybody was D two. Mm. So that was from 80, uh, 86 then to ninety three. In ninety three, we decided that um, I didn't have enough scholarships and I didn't have the, the budget that really was needed to run a top Division One program. So I realigned or we realigned women's tennis with D two. And we, we instantly saw success. I mean, those um, the, the first year that we were in Division Two, we finished um, what well, would have been the second year because we, we weren't eligible the first year. The second year, we finished third in the country. And my number one player won the NCAA, the last Division Two NCAA singles championship, wow. which was pretty cool. Um, but what, what's changed with that, too, is... Again, with the international kids, there's 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 so many kids. Rollins has stri- very stringent um, academic standards, so um, I have to depend on getting a strong student, a strong tennis player, and somebody that has some kind of family budget to contribute also towards towards their education. Because Rollins has cost seventy two thousand dollars. We're the most expensive school in the state of Florida, so that kind of works against us a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I have to rely on on good students so I can stack merit aid with our athletic aid. Right, right. 
And so speaking, I, I didn't even realize that you'd gone from division one to D division two um, and, and what that process actually uh, uh, was or, or is, or if that's still feasible for, for teams to do that. But how, how has college tennis maybe evolved over the last 30 years for the better in your view? Well, I think, I think that tennis is now they're looking out more for the student athlete to consider their time. Um, I, I know that's why we've uh, had a lot of these uh, changes in formats, shortened formats because of travel time and the need for the students to be able to, for the team that travels to be able to get back and study. Uh, I see my student athletes focusing as much on the student part of student athlete as the athlete part, um, which I think is important. And, I, and I've been fortunate that I don't have to hold study halls or, or talk to them about, you know, getting their work done. I mean, when we get on, when we would get onto a bus to go to a match, they would all be on their laptops. When we, when we finished, they'd be back on their laptops. When we were on overnight trips, they brought all their books with them. So they're, they're constantly very vigil about getting their, their homework done which which is awesome i love to see that mm. and and in in what other ways has it maybe evolved other than the, the student athletes just in terms of i guess resources or support that you felt as a coach or your colleagues have felt um you know is there more demands less demands um just how how do you view it now as you look back over the last 30 odd years well, there's certainly a lot more paperwork now <laughs> with the, the NCAA having that we're having to do all these uh, practice, weekly practice logs um, that we have to chart. We have to uh, put down for every single student athlete how many hours he or she was on the tennis court, you know, in the field of play, um, how many hours are required for conditioning. And we have to make sure we stay within all those rules. So there there's, seems like there's a lot more rules that we're following for each sport than there used to be and thus more paperwork back on us to be completed to make sure that we are following these rules because when i first came in we, we didn't have half as many rules as we have now yeah so yeah. i feel like i spend i spend more time in my office probably more than i'd like to mm -hmm. my favorite part of the job is being on the court with my team whether it be right. practice or matches um but it's a necessary evil to have to complete the paperwork mm -hmm. that is before us. Um, so I do it and I'm, and, um, I get it done on time. And I'm starting to teach my assistant coach how to do some of this so she can help me with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the thing, right? Some of our, our younger coaches don't necessarily have that perspective. It's just, it, it is, it is the job and, and they don't know any better. So they, right. they think this level of compliance or paperwork has, has always been a part of the job. But, uh, I know, uh, what my coach got away with, um, during my college years as a player <laughs> wouldn't, uh, wouldn't fly these days, but I, I won't go down there. No, um, we don't need and, to go down that road, do we? No, 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 no. All good stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, so sure. what, what are some areas do you think 
college tennis hasn't evolved but will need to moving forward as, as we talked about before we started recording here just some of the program cancellations and shared with you that my alma mater fresno state um you know has has had their men's program eliminated this is going to be their last season but um you know a lot of coaches are, are very concerned uh, obviously about uh, what is the future of college tennis? And I've, I've spoken with a lot of our podcast guests about this topic, but what are some ways do you think we need to evolve to remain relevant and, and uh, relevant for, for decades to come? You know, I think it's really important to make a connection with your community. If you have a community connection and the school knows that, I think that's really helpful. I know a lot of schools don't. Some are, some are a lot more involved than others. Um, I'm encouraging uh, my assistant coach to help me with that, to get involved in more community service. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, we're not able to, to bring people to campus, say, to do clinics or that sort of thing, or that travel right now. But that's what we've done in the past. Um, our teams have worked with, uh, it's called the Buddy Up, the USTA Buddy Up. Have you heard of that? It's, I uh, haven't heard of that. It's working with Down syndrome children. So mm -hmm. we've been doing that for the last four years. We've partnered with uh, the USTA on that. And we've been going out to Lake Nona to the national campus mm -hmm. on Saturdays. So we would do that in the fall when we're kind of, like, you know, the off-season part when we're not as busy. And the kids have really enjoyed that. And, and the people that are running it have really enjoyed having us there. So I think doing that, I think getting to know your professors on campus is important. Um, I'm going to go back to a comment you said, well, maybe you've been there so long you pissed off a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, I, I think it's the other way around. I, I think that um, I have a very good relationship with the professors on this campus. They know that I have good students. Um, I never, ever have asked a player to, to skip a class to come to a practice. Mm -hmm. um, if they have to leave early to meet a professor, 100% of the time, yes, you can go. Or they have to meet a study group. Yes, you can go. So I'm always putting the emphasis on the academic side of things. And I know the professors are aware of that. So that makes them a little bit more flexible when we do have to travel. Instead of giving that player an unexcused absence, they'll say, oh, well, you've you got to go play tennis for Coach Buckley. Well, good luck. You know, go out and play and good luck and, and mm -hmm. represent the school well. So I feel that it's important to develop those relationships and maybe find out from um, other people in the department and players that are on the team, what professors do you think we could have a problem here with, with you being a student athlete and reach, you know, reaching out to those people, invite them to come to a tennis match, get them involved. Right. They get to know you and the players, they're more likely to kind of side with you. Mm hmm. Yeah, that way sure. you avoid you avoid butting heads uh, altogether. Just you mm -hmm. know, and we've done this before. I've had my players. I'll have each player invite one professor, at least a minimum of one professor each season to come to a match, and they they introduce me to that professor if I don't already know them, and you know we we try to give them either a team T shirt or a hat or something, and try to get them involved. And mm -hmm. what we're doing, and I think when that happens, you're going to see a softening um, of their reactions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important. Again, it's what I start out this conversation with with you. It, to me, it gets down to the really relationships, forming relationships with the right people on campus. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, I also um, outside of professors. I mean, whenever I see a facilities uh, grounds worker 
blowing off our tennis courts, picking up the trash for us. I always thank them. If I see them, hey, thanks for coming out. Thanks for coming out today and doing this. We really appreciate it. It's really important to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when they hear that, when they feel appreciated, they're, they're going to be more apt to maybe do a better job or do it more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's, it's so important to let people know they're appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, as you were talking about the, the Buddy Up program there with, with the USTA, would you encourage coaches then to maybe reach out to their, their USTA section or, or district and, and see what programs they have going on? And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's probably, I'm sure there's other programs, but this is one that seemed to um, really be of interest to, to my team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's because one of my players has a Down syndrome sibling. And so it, it kind of hit home. And um, so uh, they, they love it. So, you know, talk to your team. That's what I did. What, what interests you the most? Where would you like to reach out for community service? You know, what would you like to be doing? Who do you want to help? Yeah. And um, I, I think that's really important. Yeah. Okay. And so um coming back to the the encore coaching side of things so I've, I've been out of coaching now uh i don't know coming up on five years now uh but it's it's funny to look back and reflect and especially when i'm having these conversations the the guest will say something and i'll cringe at like oh my god i can't believe i i did that or um <laughs> i wish i i wish i'd had this conversation before um before i was a coach or during the time as a coach but is there anything you look back on now and kind of cringe about and and have evolved and changed and have eliminated from your your coaching repertoire well are you talking about like on court coaching yeah yeah definitely in general yeah definitely um probably on court whether it's matches whether it's practice maybe it's even conversations with players your timing of conversations Mm, what you had said what you wish you didn't uh, (laughs) what you wish you had not said um is there anything like that that pops into your into your head yeah i think so absolutely um as i as i've evolved as uh, as a coach one of the things that that I started recognizing was I, I didn't realize how much my players watched me during matches, watched my reaction. Mm. And when I realized that I knew I had to change my body language because my body language was not always very good. <laughs> they could tell when I was upset or disappointed or whatever. Mm. And so I've, I've made it a point not to do that. I mean, it's been a while, but I make the point not to show that emotion that I used to show all the time. And I think it's better for them. And then when I go out to talk to them, I, you know, I try not to be emotional because usually I would say, honestly, over half the time that I go onto a court, it's to calm a player down more than it is to actually give, um, give coaching tips. It's, it's to just to talk them down to say, okay, everything's okay. You know, just take a couple deep breaths. Um, Let's try this when you get up after the change, you know, and you just kind of, it's almost like talking down off the ledge, you know, it's like they, they get so worked up sometimes that all they need is just a calming voice. And I think you have to learn that. The other thing I've learned is I know which players I can talk to right away after a match and which I just need to stay away from. Mm. And, and everybody's different. So you have to, I think it's important as a coach, you, ha- you can't treat every player the same. 
you know, you may have one approach, but you, you've got to understand who you're talking to. Are they even listening? I mean, there's some players I've had, I know that they're so upset when they lose. There's no point in me talking to them for, for 30 minutes or so because they're, they're just, they're either too mad or they're too upset. They're not even going to hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to realize that because I always thought, oh, I immediately have to go out. Oh, Susie just lost. I better go out to the court. No, Susie, Susie needs to go to the locker room and go to the bathroom and just calm down a little bit. And when she comes back out, then we'll have our chat. You know, see, mm -hmm. again, you have to learn how each player, um, how, how you can approach each player. There are some players that they want to hear feedback immediately. And I'll, I know who they are. And those are the ones I'll go out to after, after they've lost. Or maybe even if they've had a good win, we'll sit down and talk. But mm -hmm. So it's important, again, to understand each player and, and to realize that each player is an individual. You cannot treat everybody the same. The only yeah. thing that I try to do the same is to be fair to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't treat number one any differently than number ten, and and players see that. You know, I don't, I, I don't play favoritism. Um, I make sure that number one hits with number ten, and number nine hits with two, and three is with six, and and you know, I'm always mixing up um, my practice partners. I think that's really important. I think a lot of times coaches make the mistake of always putting the best players together. Well, that doesn't make the other players feel very good because they start to see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So to me, that, that has to do with treating them fairly. Now, if there's, if I'm trying to prepare my number one player to play, um, a big hitting number one player from one of our conference opponents, and I'm going to put her against my biggest hitting player. So it may, may end up being my number two player. So it depends what we're getting ready for, how I'm going to match up the players. But I think it's important that um, that the players all hit at some point are practicing uh, with everybody. Hmm. And Bev, as you're, you know, uh, I guess observing uh, other coaches during matches or you're having conversations maybe with, with some younger coaches, is, is there any themes or kind of mistakes you, you see them making earlier in their coaching career that if uh, – if they changed maybe a little faster, they could save themselves some some heartache and some pain. Is there any any themes that have been coming up in more recent years that you see? Um, not really. I think I've had a few coaches that have come up to me and asked my opinion about some things um, when I've been coaching against them. Um, and, and I'm gonna, and I'll be honest. I'm always honest with them. I've seen some coaches, I think, that kind of start out like I did. They're a little, too, I think they're a little too hard on their players. Um, I think they have to learn that, you know, they're people first. To me, they're people first and then the players second. Mm -hmm. And so I try to treat them that way. And I think when you get um, into a match and you kind of get worked up and it's, it's getting tight, it's, it's sometimes it's easy to forget that because you're, you're so focused on wanting to win that you forget that the most important thing really for you, if you want to get the best out of your players is to stay calm and, and know how to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great advice. So um, where does winning the ITA meritorious award rank mm -hmm. in your long list of achievements? Probably the highest right now. I've, I've had the, I've been fortunate enough to be been inducted into, um, five hall of fames but i'll be honest this this one is the, the most special 
Uh, and particularly when I looked at the list of the past recipients, I was very humbled to see. I mean, the first one was Dave Fish from Harvard and my good friend, um, Ann Lebedeff. I mean, what boy, she's a gem. And, and mm -hmm. Sheila McInerney from Arizona State. I'm looking at these names going, wow, I'm really joining a, a pretty elite group of people. So I, I would say it's it's right up there for sure. That's that's great yeah. to hear and congratulations and well Thank done you. and well deserved. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Really cool to see that. And so, you know, part of the reason you receive that award is is because of your, you know, commitment and your dedication to, to the growth of college tennis. And you know, can you talk a little bit about why it has been important for you to get involved with the governance side of, of college tennis and the ITA and why you'd encourage the next generation to to be maybe not as equally involved, but but involved in some way if they can be? Well, you know, I think it's it's so important to to give back to the sport and, and the best way I can do that in addition to coaching is to be part of the government side of it because i think without the ita we wouldn't we wouldn't ha i don't think we'd have college tennis it certainly wouldn't be where it is now mm -hmm. um the ita has been involved in it ever since i've been coaching and they they've just gotten better and better um, as a governing body for tennis and i think that it, you know when we don't volunteer when we don't give back we're only hurting ourselves and and the sport because uh, i know a lot of coaches they love to complain, but they never have any answers. And they're, they're not the ones who are going to serve on committees. And I've said to these people, especially when I've had this one in coach in particular, complain to me about things. I said, do you know what you need to do? You need to sign up for, for an ITA committee. You need to have your voice heard on the committee because that's where the difference is going to be made, not complaining to me. Mm -hmm. So you got you to go in into it knowing that you – you hopefully can help and you have answers to some of these questions, these tough questions that we face day in and day out as coaches. And, and I think it's important to give back in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. And I think Bev, when we have some younger uh, coaches uh, get on these committees, I think sometimes they defer a little bit too much to the the older, more experienced coaches who have sat on these committees, or or just have more experience, life experience in general, um, and and maybe feel like they're their opinion doesn't matter as much because they don't have those many as, as many years behind them. So how would you um, speak to those young coaches that are on our committees and encourage them to, to make sure their voices are heard and not to fare so much to, to the more experienced coaches on the committees? Well, I mean, from my own experience, when I first started out on, on the ITA board, it was, it was all the divisions. We were one, I was on the board of directors and, and also on the, uh, mm -hmm. the operating committee. Um, there were so many coaches that I knew had been coaching for a while and at these big D1 schools that it kind of was intimidating. Initially, I think that's what a lot of the, the younger coaches feel. I know I did. Um, and then, actually, I got um, uh, I talked more after I felt that I had proven that I knew that I knew what I was doing. As my program got better, I felt that I could then speak up more that people would listen to me because because i had shown that i would that i had a, had a nice program i think it's it, i think it's fairly hard um for these young coaches coming in because they are intimidated mm -hmm. by by the um coaches like 
I guess I don't know if it'd be myself now, but I've been there for a while. <laughs> and, and I think that they're afraid that they're not going to be listened to. Um, but I think it's important that we hear from the young ones because I think the issues that they could be facing would be different than us. But I also noticed um, that a lot of times the same coaches are talking all the time. I think it would be good to open the floor up and, and let some of these younger coaches talk a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, and I, I agree with you 100%. I, I've sat on these operating committees when I was a, a college coach as well. And it's it definitely easy to be intimidated by some of the, some of the, yeah, the, the, especially the top D1 coaches mm-hmm. who've had a huge amount of success and have been doing it for a, a lot of years and easy to defer to them. But also no, no offense to those individuals, but, but sometimes we have coaches on, on committees that, um, are only thinking what's best for for their team uh, and the future oh, yeah. of their team and not not what's best for um college tennis as a whole or, or the division or the coaches within the region and um so that's why it's important that that especially those coaches yeah maybe they haven't had as much success or they haven't been as around uh, as much um but but their intentions might be pure and they might be looking out for for everybody within their region or with everybody within their division and um those are the coaches we want to you know raise up and and keep involved for as long as possible and are able to look beyond just what makes sense for for their program at that moment in time and um uh, i started when i was serving on the board i've also i continued to be a ranking committee. I was a chair for a while in our region and now mm-hmm. I'm, um, I'm just one of the one of the committee members in our region for, for the women in the Southeast. And I can tell you that there's been coaches on that committee that all they're doing is looking out for their own programs. And that's, you know, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the way things should, should be handled. Um, those people didn't last very long because, uh, you know, as, as a sitting member as the D2 uh, co-chair um, on the ITA um, committee, uh, OPCOM, I, I feel it's important that I try to keep more of my personal feelings out of it as opposed to what is best for our division, what's best for D2 men's and women's tennis. And um, I, I think um, that I'm doing a better job of that myself personally because uh, there are times you know, I would be looking out for my program a little more than I, I probably should have. And um, I think it's important to, to recognize that when we are serving in these types of committees, uh, we're trying to do what's best for our division. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt you, you have exemplified that. And, and uh, yeah, we, we hope you'll be involved for, <laughs> for many years to come, Bev. But we're going to move into our, our rapid fire round here. So oh, what what is yeah. it? <laughs> what is a book that's made a major impact on you as a coach? Well, I've always been um, a, a big fan of Billie Jean and, and we're friends. And actually, I I was told by some people, because I don't tweet, that she was tweeting about me winning the award, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's her book, Pressure is a Privilege. Okay. And I actually had my team read that two years ago. And I assign different chapters for each player to present at practice. And um, I, I think I think that's a gem. I think anybody in tennis or sport really should, should read this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, it is exactly what the title says. Pressure is a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to play on a college team 
and to be able to be out here. I think sometimes that the student athletes forget um, that it is a privilege to be on a team in, in a college program and to be able to play tennis outside when so many other people don't even have that opportunity. So, yeah, I would encourage everybody to read that book if they haven't. Good stuff. And do you have a favorite drill you like to do with your team? <laughs> you know, I have one that I actually named it after a player because <laughs> I was always doing it because her hands were slow. It's called the D's drill. So I had a player, her last name is D's. So it's the D's drill. And it's just, we get four players up close and I feed in a ball and it's just boom, 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 just fast, fast, rapid fire reflex. And we have fun with it. You know, we laugh and have fun, but um, when we are trying to work in our hands, that's what I'm doing. I say, okay, we're doing the D's drill. So I have fun with it because I did name it after my player. And, and uh, yeah. that was pretty cool that I did that. And did Miss D's hands get any better after yes. four years? Yeah. She ended up being one of my better doubles players. Okay. Sure. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> um, name one thing you've changed your mind on in recent years, coaching or in life. Not to take myself so seriously. Mm -hmm. I, I'm pretty type A personality and, you know, I kind of want everything, you know, organized and this and this. I feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten more flexible. Um, it doesn't always have to go my way. Um, and I, I just need to, I've learned to lighten up a lot. And I tell you what, it sure is a lot more fun coaching with that attitude. <laughs> the way I used to be before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. Um, and do you have a favorite quote? You know, I have a couple of them. One that I've used with my team, and this isn't, I mean, everybody's heard this. It's its not how you start, it's how you finish. And I'll say that to them a lot. You know, if we've gotten down after the doubles or something, and, and so they'll hear, hear me say that. And then uh, another one that I like is... Um, I remind them separate emotion from outcome when you're feeling frustrated because that's that's what happens it's you get so emotional that now you can't even think you can't hear what the coach is saying you can't focus on what it is you need to do because you're, you're so emotional so you need to separate that when you're feeling frustrated on the court mm -hmm. so just a couple little things like that I don't try to say too much to them because you don't know how much they're actually is, is you're getting through to them Mm -hmm. So I try to say something that's to the point and that hopefully uh, will stick. Mm -hmm. And what is one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they graduate from Rollins? Accountability. Mm -hmm. I want, I think everybody in life needs to be accountable for whatever they do. I mean, um, we can take this out of it's just sports whether it's in a relationship, being accountable for your your place, whether it's a friendship or it's a boyfriend or girlfriend, um, being accountable to your coach, being accountable to, to your teammates. Um, I I just really always have emphasized that. That's one of my things, that integrity. I mean, and so I've told them my definition of integrity is doing what you're supposed to even when no one's watching. Mm -hmm. So if you're down in court six and coach isn't down there, you need to act the same way as you would have coached her up on court one with you. Right. Um, again, so I think those two kind of go hand in hand. So that's really important to me as a coach. Very nice. Well, mm -hmm. 
Bev, congratulations once again on the ITA Meritorious Award and, and uh, thanks for all your time this morning. I really enjoyed our, uh, our chat this morning. I'm sure our coaches will as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of my thoughts after 35 years of coaching. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you.